of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. The text for the sermon are the first three verses. I will read them again. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old, as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them, who shall be heirs of salvation. So far we read God's holy word. Again, the text for the sermon is the first three verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Notice the his is in italics there. So more literally, spoken unto us by Son, whom he, God, hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who bring the brightness, and I'm going to suggest that a better translation would be, who being the radiance of his glory, and the express image of his, instead of person, essence. That's literally what the word is there the express image of his essence, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews is written, as the, the name implies, to Jews, to Jews who were converted, they'd been given faith by the Holy Spirit, and they believed in Jesus, and they confessed Jesus to be their Savior. But after they confessed Jesus to be their Savior, their Jewish friends and family began to persecute them. They were isolated, they were ostracized, they were cast off. And life became very difficult for these Jewish Christians. And some of them began to doubt. You can imagine that their family and friends would batter them with all kinds of abuse and saying that you believe in this Jesus, how do you know that he's the mediator? How do you know that he's the promised Messiah? And would question that. And some of these Jews were beginning to have doubts and to think, well, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't the promised Messiah. Maybe we should go back to the Old Testament way of worshiping, bring our sacrifices to the temple. Maybe we're looking for someone else yet who is coming, because that's what the Jews said. We're waiting for someone else to come. So this epistle is written exactly to encourage these kinds of Christians, Jewish Christians who need to be instructed and encouraged not to give up, but to hold fast to Jesus as the promised Messiah. So the whole book is about Jesus, particularly as the mediator of the covenant, the medi better mediator of a better covenant. The whole book exalts him, and it says, look, at the beginning here in this chapter, he's better than the angels, much higher than the angels. The next chapters will show that he's better than Moses, and then better than Joshua, and then better than Aaron. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament pictures. He is the promised Messiah. That's what the book of Hebrews will teach us. And so the, the book starts out then without any introduction. It's not like the epistles of Paul where Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church of, or something like that. Or even Peter saying, Peter written to those who are dispersed. No, it goes right to the, the point here without any introduction. And it starts in the Old Testament because the Jews were well acquainted with the Old Testament. And so it starts right out there. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, now speaks to us by the Son, by the Mediator, by the true Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's examine this, these verses under the theme then, the better exalted revealer of God. I confess that the word revealer does not capture what I want. I have not found the proper word there. He's a spokesman. He's the one through whom God speaks. That's the idea there. The exalted one through whom God speaks. So that's the theme, really, of the, the sermon. And we'll notice, first of all, his identity. And then, secondly, his speaking. And then, finally, his salvation that he works. 
So who is this exalted one through whom God speaks? He is called the Son, God's Son. God the Son is obviously the second person of the Trinity. We confess the Trinity. We confess there is one God. And God made sure that Israel understood that. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, God said to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. One Lord. Not many gods. One God is all there is in all the world. One God. And yet, in a certain sense, God is three. Not three gods, but three because God is a triune God. He's Father, He's Son, and He's Spirit. There are three within the Trinity, three within God, who say, I. The Father says, I. The Son and the Spirit all have an individual personality. And the personality, that rather the, the three persons, being God, all share the attributes of God, They are all one essence. There is not one who is higher than another, but they are all equally God. And yet they're unique. And the unique personality of the Son is captured in the word Son. It indicates that He is the one begotten, as the Scriptures speak of Him, as the only begotten of the Father. The Son is eternally begotten. Never was there a time when the Son was not. It's not as if the God, the Father, lived for a while by Himself and then He begat the Son. No, because then He wouldn't be Father. Always, eternally, the Son was begotten of the Father. And the Son, because He's Son, reflects the perfections of the Father. Just as a little boy looks like his Father, so the Son within the Trinity reflects the perfections of the Father. And just as a father loves his son, so within the Trinity the Father begets his son in love. They are united in that love of a father and a son. But understand that the text is not talking merely about the second person of the Trinity when it says the Son. It is the second person of the Trinity, but it's the second person of the Trinity who has become flesh. It's Jesus. The Son in the text is Jesus. And that's evident from a number of things. First of all, the rest of the chapter goes on to quote many psalms that are referring to the Messiah. And because it's applied to the Son here in this chapter, clearly it's the Messiah that's being referred to as the Son. In addition to that, verse 3 speaks of the fact that when He had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of God. Clearly, that's Jesus. That's the Son that is referred to in this text. And the Spirit emphasizes that when, as I called to your attention, the word His Son in verse 2 is not really His Son, it's just Son. Emphasizing not the Son or a Son, but simply emphasizing 
This is what he is. This is the character of the one we're talking about here. He is son. That's the emphasis of the text. By having no article, no, not the or a, not his even, but simply emphasizing he is son. This one son, God appointed heir of all things. That's, that's an amazing thing. God appointed the Son heir of all things. You children know what an heir is? An heir is someone who will be given a gift, usually from the parents, called an inheritance. The parents divide up their goods and say to the children, well, you will get the land and you will get the house and you will get this furniture and you will get this money. And so the possessions of the parents are divided and given to the children. It's written down in the will. It's legally theirs. When the parents die, they inherit the things that the parents had. The Bible says here, God declared to Jesus, you will inherit everything. You will inherit heaven. You will inherit the earth. You will inherit the angels. You will inherit the devils. You will inherit every single man, woman, or child that ever lived. They will be yours to do with as you please. You will inherit the, the mountains, and you will inherit the sun and the stars. All things, all things are bequeathed to Jesus. He will inherit everything. That is what this text says. That's astounding. That's not the only place it says that. God eternally decreed this according to Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 2 says this, I will declare the decree, the Lord, that is Jehovah, said to me, that is to Jesus, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then it says, Ask of me, and I, will, I shall give to thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. God determined to make Jesus to be the heir of, of everything, absolutely everything that had ever been created. The only thing exempt from that is God himself. But everything created, Jesus will be the inheritor of everything. In harmony with that, with the, in harmony with him being the heir of everything, there's three things that this text brings out concerning the work of Jesus in connection with his being an heir. First of all, he's the creator of all things. Secondly, he's the preserver of all things. And thirdly, he's the redeemer. God said you will inherit everything, and he is also the creator, the creator. As this text points out, by whom also he, God, made the worlds. God made the worlds by Jesus. The word worlds here is a, 
interesting word. It's not the ordinary word for world, although it's often translated that way in other places, but it's literally the ages by whom God made the ages. And that means that it's not merely the material stuff that Jesus made, but all of the ages, the whole of history was under the creation of Jesus Christ. Every creature that would ever be formed in all of the history of this world, even all the events that are in this world, are all out of Jesus. He's the creator of the ages. Nothing is outside of his creation power. This is amazing that Jesus is the one who created all things. We know that God, out of nothing, spoke and called into existence the mass, the material. We know that God said, let there be light, and there was light. That God said, let there be a firmament, and there was a firmament out in the heavens. God said, let the dry land come out of the waters and appear, and then God created every living thing in the air, in the fish, in, in the sea, and on the land. And God did all of that through Jesus. He is the one who created all things. That's not only an astounding thing, but let's dig into that a little more, that Jesus is the one who created. Jesus is the Word of God. And we sang of that a moment ago, that God spake, and it was, Psalm 33, but when we think of the Word of God, there's a number of things we need to call into mind. First of all, the Word is something that is powerful. God's Word simply calls into existence. No one else can do that. None of us can say, let there be, and there it is. Only God can because His Word is powerful. Jesus is the powerful Word that calls into existence that which was not. But words do more than that. Words also reveal things. I'm speaking to you using words. Words convey ideas. Words convey knowledge. Words will convey thoughts and desires. That's what a word does. So when God, using Jesus to call into existence the creation, the word in the creation continues to speak to us. That's what we sang about. The whole creation testifies of God because the Word is in that creation. It is a Word that continues to show the glory of God in all the creation around us. So Jesus as the Word is, first of all, the powerful Word that God speaks, and it is. Jesus as the Word, secondly, is the Word in the creation that testifies to us of the power and glory of God. But the third thing is that Jesus is also the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. And the Bible says, in wisdom, God created the heavens and the earth. The wisdom of God is such that within the mind of God, as he determined the whole of the creation and all of the history that would be there, it's a perfect plan. Everything has a place. Everything has a purpose. It all fits together 
marvelously for the glory of God. And the wisdom of God is Jesus. The whole of God's plan has Jesus at the core of it. The whole of the creation that God determined to make and all the history of this focuses on Jesus. He's the wisdom of God. God by all things made Jesus by the word as the power, as the one that reveals God, and as the thing that holds everything together perfectly in wisdom. By the Son, by Jesus, God created all things. Absolutely everything. That's the first thing that the text tells us about this Jesus, that God said, you will be the heir of everything. He created all things. He's the Word of God. Secondly, He's the one who upholds all things. That's that's verse 3. And upholding all things by the word of his power. This is Jesus. He continues to speak the word. And because he continues to speak the word, the creation continues to exist. That's why I'm standing here. If Jesus did not speak the word, I would not exist. None of us would. He continues to speak His powerful Word so that the whole creation exists as it is. He upholds all things by the power of His Word. Jesus does that. When we look at providence, because that's what we're talking about here, the power of God to uphold, the power of God to preserve, the power of God to govern all things, that's the providence of God. Jesus is... The one directing God's providence. Creation and providence, of course, are inseparable because when God created the heavens and the earth, He did not create the heavens and the earth to be self-sufficient, that they could simply continue to exist on their own. No, they're creatures. They depend on their Creator. And if there was not a word there upholding them, they would cease to exist. So Jesus is the one who not only created all things, he's the one upholding all things. That's two of the things that the text tells us about the one that God says you are the heir of all things, creator, the one upholding, and then the one who redeems it. Because we read in verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins. Purged our sins. And this, of course, refers to the saving work of Jesus Christ. How Jesus Christ came into the world in our flesh in order to die for sin. That's why he came. We and all men are born into this world filthy, polluted, corrupt, guilty in Adam, dead in sin as we are born, incapable of doing any good, we have to be saved from our sin. Because God determined to gather to Himself a people that would live with Him, that would be able to fellowship with Him and enjoy covenant life with Him. That's God's plan. But to do that, He had to purge us from our sin. So Jesus came into this world, and He came here to be the Savior of His people. 
God, in again in His wisdom, said, in eternity, these people belong to Jesus. They're part of His body. And therefore, the sins of His people could be imputed to Him. And He could go to the cross in our place and pay for our sins. And having redeemed us from that, paid that penalty of, of God's wrath, His perfect righteousness now could be imputed to us because we are one with Him in the body, elect people of God. But the word purge is more than that. It goes beyond that. Because purge means to cleanse. What I've talked about so far is the fact that we are justified in the blood of Jesus Christ, that God looks at us as being righteous. And yet we all know that justification does not mean that I am changed. I'm still sinful. You're still sinful, even though you're justified. So the, the text is talking about going beyond justification. It's the next step. It's sanctification. It's cleansing. He cleansed us from sin. This is the word used in Matthew 8 when the leper came to Jesus and said, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus said, I will be thou clean, cleansed. The leprosy was gone. So also in 1 John chapter 1, it speaks of being cleansed. 1 John 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and then notice, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. And it goes on in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have forgiveness of sins, but then you have a cleansing of all unrighteousness. That's the sanctification part. Jesus came not merely to atone for our sins, but also to cleanse us, to remove them. In, in essence, he's done that. In principle, we are already sanctified. The fullness of that will not happen until we die and are in heaven, and all the sin will be removed. But in, in principle, he's accomplished that already. But he didn't just die for his people. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The creation, the world, there doesn't mean every single person. Of course not. He died for his people, but he died for more than that. He died for the creation. And Romans chapter 8 says that the curse is removed from the creature, from the creation, by Jesus Christ. His atoning death took away the sin and guilt of his people and the curse from the creation. So the heir now, the heir of all things, not only is the one who created all things, the one who upholds all things, but he's also the one who cleanses it, redeems it by his blood, and cleanses it from all impurity. This is the Son. 
This is the one that the, the, the writer here is saying to these Jews, look at him. Look at who this mediator is. He's not someone that you should despise, not someone you should turn away from. Don't look for anyone better. This is the son who is the heir of all things. Creator, preserver, redeemer is this Jesus. Now the text says it's through this son that God speaks. Through this son, God speaks to us. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. We ought to notice in the first place that God's speaking to us is a miracle. Part of his perfect plan of revealing himself to us. That God would communicate. That God would give knowledge of himself in a form that we can receive. In a language that we can understand. Now to illustrate that, I want you to think just for a moment, if you were plucked up from northwest Iowa and then sat down in the middle of Africa, how would you communicate? How would you tell them who you are? How would you tell them where you came from? How would you tell them about your life? You need a language to speak with them. And if you started to learn their language, then how would you explain to them what your house looked like and your car and your cell phone and your microwave oven? How, how would you do that? You would recognize, I don't even have words. I don't even have a, a vocabulary to explain to them what my life is like. Now God will speak to us about things we've never seen, heaven. About himself, who is God, and we're just creatures. How, how is God going to speak to us and describe who he is and his greatness and his blessings that he has in store for us? That's why I say it's a miracle when God determines to speak to us in a language we can understand. And God did that from the beginning. He spoke in diverse manners, which means in many different ways, and at different times through history, God would speak. Sometimes he would give a vision. Sometimes he would come directly and speak to God, his, his people. Sometimes he would send a prophet who had received a word directly or a vision or a dream. Then God also spoke through things like the law and the, the sacrifices and the tabernacle. These were all ways that God is speaking to his people in many different ways throughout history. He's talking to his people. He's telling them about himself, about his greatness and his glory. He wants his people to know him, to know him. 
And so he spoke through Enoch and Noah, through Abraham and Isaac, through Samuel and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and all the way to Malachi. God was speaking to his people. That miracle of God revealing himself. But God said to Israel, long before the end of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God said, but I will send you another prophet. Samuel, rather Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, so it will come right out of the midst of the people, just as you, Moses, did. But I will raise up a, a prophet, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. He will talk to them. He will give them my words. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. God demands that we listen to that prophet. That prophet is his son. That's Jesus. That's the one he would raise up from among his brethren. And so we read in the text, he used to speak through prophets in many different ways, in many different times he spoke to them, but now he speaks to us by his Son. Jesus came into the world in order to speak to God's people. He took upon himself human flesh. He lived among the people. He taught them day after day. By word and deed, he taught the people who God is. He taught them with authority. He showed them who the Father is so that he could actually say to Philip, Philip, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. This is the one I came into the world to reveal, the Father. All my works, all my words point to him. He did this in a special way on the cross. There, the glory of God, there the revelation of God comes into the clearest focus, the justice of God and the love of God, the God who says sin must be punished because I am a righteous God, but also the God who is our Savior, our Savior. Jesus is the one that God speaks to us, God through whom God speaks to us. As God spoke, he had that revelation written down so that you have the Old Testament there. You have the Old Testament, all God's word is written down so that we can reveal so that we can know him. But now in the New Testament, God speaks to us through his Son. Now we have the New Testament written down so that we can know God. But God continues to speak to us through his Son. Every page of Scripture testifies to us of His Son. It does. And the Bible is preached. And as the Bible is preached, Jesus is speaking to us. And as we read the Scriptures and study it, Jesus is speaking to us. When we go to catechism class there, Jesus is speaking to us in catechism. 
teaching us about God. That's how God continues to speak to us through His Son. And Jesus is the perfect spokesman because He's the revelation of God. And He is God. If you can just imagine this for a moment, if you would be commissioned and somehow be able to go to heaven and study God for 10 years and then come back and then you would now be the spokesman. You would now be the one that would reveal to us who God is. And just think about all the times that people would say, well, what about this? And you'd say, well, I don't know. And then there'd be things you'd forget. And then there'd be things you would, you would teach, and then you'd say, did I get that right? Did I get it right? You don't have that with Jesus because he is very God. He doesn't exaggerate anything. He doesn't leave anything out that needs to be taught us. He's the perfect revelation of God because he is God. He is God. But there's more than that. What does the text tell us about this Jesus? He's the brightness or the radiance of his glory, of God's glory, and the express image of his essence. What does that mean? The glory of God is the perfections of God. All of God's perfections are infinite. God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's love and mercy and truth and His power, all those attributes of God are infinite in their perfections. That's God's glory. Now, to try to understand what that is exactly, the Bible gives us a bit of an illustration in 1 Timothy 6, 16, when it says, God dwelling in a light dwelling in a light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. The glory of God is not just a blinding light, and yet that gives you some sense of the glory of God, the brilliance of the sun that you cannot look into, the brilliance of gold that is shining it with, with a bright light on it, or a diamond, a, a bunch of diamonds, and all the glitter and the glow of that gives you a small picture of the glory of God. When Moses said to God, show me thy glory, God said, well, you, you can't see the fullness of my glory, but I'll put you here in, a, in the cleft of a rock, and I will pass by, and you'll just see the back of me, because you can't see the fullness of my glory. And when God did that, he went past, so to speak, and said to Moses, this is who I am, a God who is love and mercy and loving kindness and truth. That's who I am. That's my glory. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And that does not mean merely that the glory of God is reflected in Jesus, because that's true of us. And in heaven, each one of us will be perfected in such a way that we will reflect 
the glory of God. But Jesus doesn't merely reflect the glory of God. It comes out of him. He's the radiance of the glory of God. So that when you look at Jesus, you see God's glory. The disciples saw that in his works and in his words. The glory that Jesus had was largely covered by his human flesh, but you could see a flash of it when Jesus would perform a miracle, when he would heal a leper, when he would heal the blind man, when he would raise Lazarus from the dead. When he did those kinds of things, you saw a flash of the glory of God, his power. That's... Jesus' glory. He's the radiance. Now in heaven, of course, you see, when we go there, we will see His glory exposed for us to see. As the disciples saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when His face was shining like the sun, and His clouds like snow, and they fell down on the ground because they recognized the glory of God. That's what we will see when we are in heaven. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. But he's more than that. He's the express image of his person. The express image of his person. That is to say, the, the express image of his essence, rather. The essence refers to the very being of God. So that the, what God is was stamped upon Jesus Christ. God's very essence was evident in Jesus' work and word in his time here on the earth. God was visible in Jesus. Can't explain that. I don't know exactly how that is true, but it's true. God, he is the express image, the image of the essence of God. Jesus always was that, and this is so difficult for us to understand because before the Son of God, in the, before the triune God, that Son became flesh, Jesus was. And I know that because all things were created by Jesus. Even before He took on human flesh, Colossians says, all things were created by Him and for Him, the Son. So even in heaven, before He became flesh, so to speak, He had the form of God. You didn't wonder when you saw Him, the people in heaven didn't wonder, is that an angel or, or what is that? No, it was God, very clearly. He had the form of God, the very character of God is pressed into him. That's why he's the perfect revelation of God. That's why when he speaks, it's absolute truth. You don't ever doubt it. You don't ever wonder. It is God speaking through his son. That's why, that's the whole point of the book of, of Hebrews to the Jews. This is your Savior. Don't look for someone else. This is the only one who is able to save you. 
That he accomplished salvation is evident too from the text. Because it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God lifted him up. We saw that this morning. How God lifted up Jesus, took him out of the grave, brought him to heaven, set him down at his own right hand. God rewarded his son. The book of Ephesians tells us that Jesus has a name which is above every name. Whether it's in this earth or in the world to come, Jesus has the name which is above every name. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 12, describes the angels and it describes the, the saints in heaven and they are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wisdom and riches and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He is above all, exalted over all things because he accomplished salvation. If he had not accomplished salvation, God would not have lifted him up to the height of glory. From that position, in exaltation, God speaks to us today. He is ruling. As we saw this morning, he's executing the counsel of God with a view to his second coming. He is able to save his people to the uttermost because he has all power and all glory given to him. And from that position, God speaks to us. He doesn't speak by an angel. He doesn't speak by a mere man, by mere prophets that God sent, but it's Jesus himself who speaks to us. And it's through this, through the Bible. There isn't any more revelation needed. There isn't anything that can be added to this. This is the full revelation, and through this word, God continues to speak. The implication of that to each one of us then is take heed to that. Don't ignore the word. The word that you hear preached on Sunday, the word that you read here, the word that you hear in catechism, that word is the word of God himself through his son, Jesus. That's the word of salvation. This is the complete Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Jesus, the very revelation of God and the God of all glory, the one who is the heir of all things and who is our Savior. No one could possibly be a Savior better than that. No one could possibly save us except for this one who is God in the flesh. We thank Thee for this glorious Savior, Jesus Christ and for the salvation that is ours in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.